The Adventures in DevOps podcast is a show that explores the exciting world of software development and operations. Each episode features interesting guests from the world of technology who share their experiences and insights in a wide range of topics related to DevOps, including continuous delivery, infrastructure automation, and the culture of collaboration. Whether you are a seasoned veteran or just starting out in the field, the Adventures in DevOps podcast has something for everyone. Tune in to learn, be inspired, and stay up to date on the latest trends and best practices in the world of DevOps. I'm your host, Jonathan Hall. And today in the virtual studio with me is Jillian. Hello. And that was a very nice intro, Jonathan. Where did that all come from? Thank you. I just made it up off the top of my AI head. Oh, wow. That's great. We'll have to talk so much more about that. <laughs> and with us today, we have Warren. Hi, Warren. Hello. I'm Warren, the CTO at Authorist. I can talk a little bit about that. It's sort of a tech company that builds uh, SaaS products, authorization, authentication as APIs for software makers to get over those difficult permissions and access control challenges. Hopefully, we don't talk too much about that today, though. <laughs> I was about to say that's great because I never want to have to code any of that stuff ever again. Well, you know, then we can spend the whole time talking about that. That's only like been the recent part of my journey, though. Before that, I worked in a little bit of healthcare and e-commerce and been all over the place, mostly in the U.S. But in the last few years, I actually moved to Switzerland and that's a great place. And we could spend the whole time talking about that, too. Let's talk about what you want to talk about. That's what we're here for. Yeah. What are we yeah. So, <laughs> so I wasn't sure. There's always so many things going on, but with you know, recent controversies and whatnot, I felt like uh, open source was a great topic to sort of jump into and and discuss. And it doesn't require a lot of in-depth knowledge or blog reading to get on the same page with that. Cool. So maybe you want to inter- uh, talk to us a little bit about what your relationship is with open source. Are you a contributor? A- Container, what, what do you, a consumer, how do you interact with open source? Yeah, I guess all of the above, un- unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> I think probably early on in my career, I definitely got the hang of, of GitHub and got rejected from their private repository program. So you got experience with put, posting yourself in the open web and having other people see it potentially. But I think working at any sort of enterprise company or even, even smaller ones, you're forced to interact with the libraries and packages. You're just not going to be able to build everything yourself. So got to go out there and find it. And, you know, I think the quality is just a little bit better than Stack Overflow when it comes to, you know, pulling code in and starting working on it and whatnot. Just a little bit better? That's a pretty low bar, though. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, that's actually really interesting because I think, you know, this is like one of the myths that, like, it's just so much easier to pull something out there in the world and come in and it solves whatever problem you've got at at some scale, right? And it's true, right? Like, definitely can help get over something. But I feel like in the next five minutes after you start using it, you start asking all the questions like, wait, how do you do this correctly? What is like, what are even the parameters you pass into this? What is the interface? Then you start reading the documentation, which is, you know, no one's updated that in months. So you jump in there and that's a whole nother experience. You start to become an expert with whatever that is. And like, okay, maybe I could just change this to add in a parameter to make it do exactly what I, I need to do. And that's when you become an expert in that particular library and you hate the code there. I mean, I think there's a good old joke here that like no engineer left and a new one came in and was like, wow, my predecessor, I love their code that they wrote. I think, you you know, when you didn't write in it, someone else's, there are just so many challenges. And some of these older libraries that have been around for a while, they have the patterns from 
the history of whatever the language were that significantly changed. So at my company, we do a lot of like JavaScript, TypeScript stuff just because we do stuff in the web space and there's a lot of our users focus on that. Uh, we have other languages too, of course, but, and JavaScript's evolved so much over the now, like the LTS version is 18 and that's, you know, over quite some time. And so things have significantly changed. So you go back and you look at a library that hasn't been updated and it's like, I'm not even sure I know how this code works anymore. That has been my experience with JavaScript. I've learned it a few times and every time it's completely different. <laughs> I think I can identify, yes. <laughs> I mean, I think a similar thing happens with other languages. I don't have as much experience, but like I've done a lot of Java and C Sharp and some other languages. And there were there have been huge changes in, in there as well, which just make it a challenge to go back, like significant things that are different between C sharp versions, uh, conversion to .NET Core, and then back to whatever standard is that Microsoft decided to do. There are like fundamental library differences. You can't just like cross compile and get it up and working again. The code looks the same. So it's deceptive in that way. But I, I think that's pretty common. And I think that's one of the core challenges that, you know, if you're working at a company, you have maybe even the tools you built yourself, which is its own sort of problem, but it's maybe consistent in some way that you'd be able to go somewhere. But I think JavaScript might be worse, although I've, this is probably just my own experience. And part of that, I mean, obviously the, the, the ECMAScript 6 change or whatever uh, was a huge one. And, you know, JavaScript doesn't even look the same in certain ways. You know, function definitions have changed fundamentally. I shouldn't say fundamentally, superficially. Yeah. Uh, if you know what it's doing, it's pretty obvious what it means. But if, until you do, it's like, what? This isn't a function anymore. Yeah. Um, but if you consider the frameworks, you know, at one point we were writing straight JavaScript and then along came jQuery and changed everything. And then jQuery fell out of fashion. And then, so you know, if you consider each of those sort of milestones, there's a lot of change. But yes, if you look at, at libraries, you know, what libraries in Vogue and whether it's C Sharp or Java or, or whatever language, Perl or, or Python or whatever, that changes all the time too. So yeah, yeah I mean, you kind of have to keep up to keep up. It's, there's really not a shortcut, is there? I mean, that's a, that's a good one because actually I recently found a couple of highly used libraries. Uh, one of them is Got. And another one, I don't even go out there and find it. I'm sure you can find complaints that, oh, they no longer work with common JS, which was like the standard strategy for imports anymore. So now a lot of them are switching to modules and you have swaths of users complaining that, hey, like I can't import this anymore. I need to be using some sort of Babel or Bundler or Transpiler to even make it work out of the box because mo modules do not directly interface with non-module code in a straightforward way. Uh, maintainers are complaining, oh yeah, you know, we did this because people wanted it and we're not going to maintain two versions of our of our software because that's a huge challenge. So it's definitely sort of this, well, you can pull something off the shelf, but as soon as you include that library, you become de facto owner. Like you're responsible for your own software. So if you don't know what the maintainer is going to do or the direction they're going to do, like you're going to potentially have a problem down the line when they change something and now you're on the hook for, well, do we use the older version and then, you know, make it our own or do we switch our library at this point, which you can't swap out an HTTP client or some other functional provider and just expect the interfaces to be the same. Right. And I think here, one of the, one of the questions often comes up that, you know, should you even use open source, right? I think there's a security angle that people are bringing up like I, I think it was a couple of years ago especially with like who your dependencies are to start publishing things like s bombs uh, software bill of materials so that your customers know if you're potentially affected when they find out about security vulnerabilities before you do i don't i don't know where that's going 
I, I think there's some interesting aspect to it, but I think it's a good reminder that open source isn't necessarily secure. But I don't know that SBOMs are going to be the solution. But there's like tons of these uh, SNICs or Amazon's got one for code scanning. There's tons of providers out there that you can go and look them up that promises to review your software and the dependencies and find whatever security vulnerabilities are actually there. I remember when I was fresh out of high school, so this is 1999, I think, I was working at an ISP uh, and Linux existed, but it wasn't, it hadn't taken the world over yet, uh, but it was certainly known among IT professionals. And the ISP I was at uh, was using open B, no, it was, it was BSDI, using BSDI for a lot of operating systems. And I remember asking the, one of the co-founders, you know, why didn't you choose Linux? And his answer was, I didn't want open source. I want somebody who is contractually obligated to fix a problem if I find one. Now, of course, we, we know now in retrospect, maybe this didn't exist then, but by now, certainly you can get those contracts even for open source. But I, I think that's an interesting uh, way to look at things. And, and, and the security angle is also interesting because you can hear, I, I always hear both sides of the story. One is, you know, open source is insecure because, and, and you know, you can look at these NPM bombs that we've seen or whatever. But on the other hand, you hear people like Linus Torvalds and, and, and you know, people in his making claims like with open source, more eyeballs means better security. So, you know, I, I can see both sides here. It's, it's a really interesting, really interesting question. And I don't think there is a single right answer, but maybe we can find it today. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can share some of my experience, I guess. Uh, yeah. So... I think there's like a lot of software which is insecure. And you brought up the, the Linux thing. I, I love that conversation, which is sort of a separate one. And I remember at more than one company I've been at, they had some sort of regulation. And their interpretation of the regulation was, we are going to clone every single library and package on the internet that we use internally into an internal artifact registry. And I love that they think that this was a solution for security that you wouldn't get, as you mentioned, the JavaScript bombs. And I think it's it's clear, like maybe it's worth two seconds about that, that some of these maintainers recently um, to support war effort or whatever their reasoning was, they made a change to their library, which suddenly started spewing out nonsense on the command line or the log files or whatever, corrupting what was there and had some actually real world impact, negative impact to some organizations that they didn't intentionally want to have any malicious uh, perspective towards, but ended up having that. I do think the eyeball uh, answer is a good one. Uh, it's much better than trying to implement security protocols yourself. Like I trust NPM to do security scanning way more than I would trust a smaller organization that doesn't have the capability or expertise cloning that in and pinning versions things are going to move things are going to change faster and what was potentially insecure before like let's say you jump from uh, http 2 to 3 or tls you're still on 1.2 you can go to 1.3 if you're using open source libraries you're using open source version but if those need to be vetted internally like you don't have the world's leading experts in package vetting like inter like maybe you do right and then uh, by all means clone those packages internally and go to town but i you know i would like Go work for that company that's running it, which, of course, now is Microsoft. I feel like when it comes to open source, it's hard not to not to name them. Uh, I almost say they who shall not be named. But uh, good decision or not, I feel like they're definitely at the forefront in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, unless your service area is so small that a single person or team can understand it, which is rare, then, yeah, it's a losing game in my opinion. Oh, definitely. Well, Will has joined us. Welcome, Will. Yeah, I joined and heard you talking about running bulletin boards at an ISP and thought I joined like back in time or something. Yeah, welcome to 1999. Nice. It's good to be back. <laughs> Holy shit. Stay away from the future, man. It's just not fun there anymore. <laughs> How are the flying cars there in, in 2015? Right? <laughs> 
So we're talking about open source and the security aspect, I guess, is, is where we were right there. So, I mean, this I think comes up a lot for for us specifically because we're in the security space. So what we're end up using and building is important. So what we can, I think we're like expert implementers in a lot of ways. We look at the crypto space, uh, not cryptocurrency, but cryptography, crypto. whatever. Yeah, real crypto, right? The underlying. I mean, it's really interesting because there's a lot of inspiration you can take from the decision to have back money with uh, crypto, right? Like, what are they using to, and that they claim is secure from the brute force attack from the entire world, like totally public? Like people say, oh, yeah, don't encrypt your secrets and put them on the public Internet because someone could break it eventually. And then they have access to your secret. Well, hopefully you're rotating it at least once a year. Uh, but even if you're not, like the Ethereum ledger is out there, right? You can go guess all of those private keys if you want. And you, we go and we look at it, like we evaluate, okay, what are they actually doing there? It's like, okay, well, they're doing something actually pretty intelligent. And if we look at what companies are doing that have, quote unquote, they're supposed to have good security posture, they're nowhere near that level nowhere near, near that level of expertise. So we do implement a lot of different uh, strategies. And like a lot of our, one of the things we evaluate our, like our competitors on, like someone will ask us, hey, have you ever used, quote unquote, you know, name a random competitor in the authentication space? And it's like, okay, great. You know, let me, let me break down for you what they're doing and how easy it is for someone to crack their security given enough time. And they're not that advanced. They're still way more advanced than anything you build yourself. You know, so that's sort of an interesting aspect. There's a comparison of the, do you use a SaaS product versus open source, right? You know, is open source more secure or a company that is focused on it? Let's talk about that a little bit. I think that's an interesting thing. I think maybe we should start with definitions because in my mind, open source and SaaS are not exclusive necessarily. But I, I remember a, a conversation I had recently with somebody else who, I think he put a LinkedIn poll. He asked, what is SaaS? And, and two of the options were, one was a business model and one was a distribution model. And they both got relatively to the equal votes. But his point was, it's actually not a distribution model because SaaS, we often think of SaaS as something web-based, but it doesn't have to be. And I remember I used, one of the first companies I worked for in my career, we sold a SaaS that was installed on physical servers. You know, we would we would install the software on a server and mail it to you and you would put it in your data center. But our licensing, our business model was SaaS. So I, I would like to hear from you when you talk about open source versus SaaS, what do you mean? And then let's dig, dig into the nuances there. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess you can't use any more. Like it used to be your software is private, but I think we see companies like GitHub or GitLab and just a number of other ones. I want to say part of Honeycomb stuff, just anything that runs has an open source model. They take their software, they build it totally in public and then run licensing or subscription on top of it. Or they have a managed version that you pay for, but you know sort of what they're running. So we can't use that as a de facto aspect. I think there is something about the service you're offering. You're offering. So it doesn't matter what you're running, but you're selling something, right? So company that it's the service, that's the software. So your customers, software or technical at least, probably software engineers, and they're using it as a component of, of their own product. Maybe GitHub itself is a SaaS model and its products are open source libraries. Maybe that's, just, I mean, that's, I think it's a stretch, but I, I think that that's align, aligned here. So like we have open source libraries that our company contributes to. I do a lot of open source development. So I find like a lot of libraries out there that I don't want to touch or don't do exactly what I want. And it's not a good story to try to get fixes implemented or improvements that are necessary. 
Well, I can just have a whole talk about that, I guess. Uh, it's like you find something and you really like it and you start using it and you use it for a while and you start finding a bug, one or two that affects your product or whatever you're building and you have to go in and somehow work around it. Some libraries, some languages offer opportunities to fix those. Other ones, you really need to change the source code. I think some of the things are stylistic, like this is confusing, it needs to be different. One of the things we forked not too long ago was a open API explorer. So like a UI that exposes your open API specification for APIs in a visual way. And so a lot of that is a user experience. So while the functionality could be similar that we, we needed, the whole UI had to be changed. It just wasn't well-maintained. Also, we hated Swagger at the time and like we wanted something better. And that, yeah, I mean, we had used that, like I used that at like three different companies before it got sort of taken up by OpenAPI Specification Foundation or what the OpenAPI initiative. And then we're just like, there has to be something modern that we don't have to pay for a developer portal that we can host simply in an AWS S3 bucket. And there was some things, but we ended up pulling a bunch of things together and making it our own and then open sourcing it because we're not uh, API. We don't sell APIs. We sell a product uh, that it has an API, but that's, you know, it's not a management portal. And, you know, that sort of goes along things. Like we found one library where we do serverless and we need like cold starts are a huge problem. And we pulled in a library and it had like a five second startup time for a static library. And it's like, okay, well, you're not going to fix this problem by going to library and trying to change it. You will break implementation. Someone will say, oh, we want the huge startup time on the front side. So we ended up forking that and making a lot of changes. And then halfway through the process, we realized, actually, this library is terrible, terrible. <laughs> like, <laughs> like what, other, what are the other competitive libraries out there that we can go and try to see? And none were that great, but we did find a different one and we ended up forking that off and then re-releasing that. And then we have, you know, stars on, on GitHub that, that go for a long time on this. And so we are unfortunately in that space. And then all of our customers are like, we use random language thrown in here. I think we have eight or nine SDKs in different languages. And each one is, I mean, it's not a lot of open source, but each one depends on frameworks that are written by those. And every single one of those has completely different understanding of how you should have a, just a simple SDK, a simple HTTP library. Like these are simple things. And yet everyone's a huge challenge to deal with. You asked about the difference between SaaS and, and open source. I hope we're getting closer to that answer. <laughs> we could just ask chat GPT. Yeah, that's how he's introduced the, the show. Let's see if it's working now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I said, controversies. I mean, there's that one that that's sort of new. I'll call it a controversy. I don't know if it is technically. And there's like the GitHub Copilot program. So for those that don't know, GitHub started releasing auto code generation via AI sourced from files on GitHub without the license. So like you can't say don't give me code that was generated from licenses that I can't use, for instance, which is... That I sounds mean, like it's going to have some interesting repercussions. <laughs> I don't know what those going to... Like, I don't even know what those look like. But I mean, yeah, I know, I know like that's kind of a big deal in my line of work is that we have to, you know, scan the software and make sure that underneath the hood that there isn't some dependency upon a license that can't be used, right? It's pretty much all going to be like Apache or MIT or something like that. Even, you know, like, I don't know, even some of the licenses that are like sort of open source, but the one, what is it? The one that says like, oh, you have to contribute back. Things like that can't typically be used when you're like designing a product, right? So yeah, one of the good news set. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen there, right? I mean, I think it's probably on its way out if we've already hit the next level of technology, which is chat G, uh, GPT. I mean, I have to say, like, I, I knew where OpenAPI was for 
from the previous GPT-3 models of just text generation, content generation. But like this is just a whole nother level that is just surprisingly good compared to where they were before. You would think that of all people, Microsoft would probably be sensitive over using code and software licensing and the potential legal ramifications of that because... You know, they've got a bit of experience in that field. (laughs) Like, I I think we're just kind of over that at this point. Like, ah, whatever. We bought GitHub. Like, we're we're good. I like I like the sentiment. I think there's this joke that has been around forever with it's a graphical representation of the internal organizational structure of different companies. And I do think that the Microsoft one is is a bunch of different, completely disparate areas holding firearms towards each other. So I. And I haven't worked for Microsoft, so I have I have no experience to you know to know whether that's true or not. But if you look at that, or companies like Amazon, how they become very effective, they are pretty segregated. Uh, it's actually burned Microsoft a couple of times because their like login portal, the login credentials, authentication, they have five or six now. They, LinkedIn has its own, then there's GitHub, and then they had Live and Outlook and a couple of different Azure ones. They allowed backdoors into each other, and so Live was like an old version of Live was vulnerable and it allowed account takeover in Azure a couple of years ago due to, due to this. So for better or worse, uh, I can imagine it's staying segregated at least a little bit. Yeah, I like, uh, you know, I think at the end of the day, while we always have technology problems and actual technology difficulties to face, there's always like also the people problems as well that seem to kind of cause more trouble in my experience. <laughs> Right, like especially these kind of ideas with having the open source libraries that maybe lots of people rely on or depend on. There's like a team or a person or a company or whatever behind that, and they built that library for a specific person for a specific purpose. Rather, at some point, they're they're probably going to change directions or do something that is not optimal for your your use case. And it's like, well, what what you know, what do we do then? I I think you nailed it. Like that's actually a huge aspect. Like these libraries don't exist. For, for no reason, uh, the best ones may be with someone in their in their basement writing something for fun. But most, I feel like a lot of the open source is definitely driven by companies with some goal in mind. Like I'll say it ours, yeah, it's definitely brand awareness and advertisement. Like you start using these products that we put there that are free; they're not our core business model, and you will learn about our services, what we offer, and how they integrate. And companies are definitely doing that. And I think there is this myth that you can just go and contribute directly to an open source library and it will get pulled in or can report a bug and it will get fixed. I think you're lucky if you get closure on whatever your problem is, because I found most of my pull requests, they open for years. Issues, like if it's it's certain companies who I won't name names, will auto-close in 30 days. And I'm like, no one's looked at this. And yet you're saying, because no one's looked at this, it should be I'm like, if this is a real problem, at least acknowledge it. Or if it's not a problem, be like, no, you know, this is not the direction. Because you're absolutely right, uh, Jillian, the direction of the company is super important. Like when we pull, if we were going to buy a product from a company that wasn't open source or whenever you buy anything, I think people do realize they need to evaluate the company that's providing it. You know, what's important to that company, what direction they're going. I mean, you do it for non-software related things. I definitely do it, you know, part of my responsibility is to do it for tech related things. You know, if we depend on this company 
irrelevant of the size of the company or whether or not they're going to be successful. Like, do their values align with ours? Do we want to pay the money for this or not? Well, that kind of leads to like an interesting change that I've seen maybe like more in the open source data science space, because that's where I am, where there was a really big problem for a long time of software being created. And then the people who created the software, like it, it wasn't a part of their, you know, their day job. Maybe they were doing it labor of love. Maybe it was like a job that they had and they left. Maybe they were PhD students who weren't being, you know, paid enough to eat. All these kind of things were happening. And then there was like, like major software that people were really, really relying upon. And it became, you know, like it accumulates like bugs or isn't able to be built on a newer system or whatever. And it was like, well, what do we do about this? Like, what is kind of maybe society is too strong of a word, but like the tech community, like, well, what are we going to allow to fail and whatnot? And if these are things that have to be here and, you know, we have this kind of open source model, which, you know, in, in some industries, it has to be there, right? Like if you're doing public research, the software is supposed to be public anyways, because it's being paid for with taxpayer dollars and all these kind of things. But like, what is the kind of, what is the solution? And it seems like in the data science space, it's the, we're going to build this open source library and it's going to be a source of, you know, shameless self-promotion, which I'm here for. You can go to bioanalyze and see all my shameless self-promotion, <laughs> right? But then like a lot of these, a lot of these libraries have like companies behind them. And then that's how the software continues to be maintained and built. But then of course, you do still have this problem where, you know, I could purchase the the enterprise plan of the software for the, the support and the shiny things. And then in a year, they could decide to completely change the direction. And I guess, I don't know, we're just kind of out of luck then. You know, I think it's one of those Sexy. problems that it's exposed because of the model, but not a new problem, right? Like nothing stopped any of the companies that you depended on in the past from going under or changing direction, but suddenly it's open source and you start asking yourself these questions. I find it happens a ton for me in my work, the migration from monolith to microservices. People start questioning, oh, well, now we have this problem and that problem. And I'm like, you always had these issues. Like you just decided now was the moment to start complaining about the fact you don't have a solution to that. But yeah, I mean, obviously those those libraries can go under. But maybe the good thing for open source, you'd be like, yeah, we always depended on this. We always were responsible for making sure it worked with our software. At least we don't have to contact a company and get them to fess up their source code. Like it's it's just there. I can go and pull it in and start using it, no problem. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you discover a problem with GCC or something, maybe you don't have the skills, but you could acquire the skills or hire somebody who has the skills to fix it. If you are using Borland C++ and it had a bug, sorry, dude. <laughs> I love you brought up that example. There was, because I tried to do this not too long ago. One of my least favorite Linux commands is LN, uh, link. And I always got the order of the parameters wrong. And I'm like, well, from a user experience standpoint, the order doesn't matter. One of these things exists and the other one doesn't. This is the real file and the, and the link. The, and I went and I filed the issue and we're having discussion with the Linux maintainers of the, the package that, that managed this. And they're like, no, you're, you're wrong. You're like, I think, I think this is simple and people should understand it. And I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, I can't remember this every single time. I have to do it. I have to look at the documentation. Which way is it? And just, there was just a mindset thing about the expectation that was built around this. So yeah, just going and fixing open source, it seems like it's easier than it really is. It's funny that you bring that example up because it's been 30 years for me and I still can't remember the order that they go in. I always get it wrong. You know, okay, so I, I actually, while I was having this discussion, I found the epiphany, which was it's the same order as copy is. So the real thing comes first. <laughs> or move. They're all the same. So move from real location first. And since then, I haven't had a problem. 
good to have these nice memory devices. I, I think and, that and is the money on. shot right there. That makes the episode worth listening to. <laughs> right, all the way, all the way at the end. Right, you uh, you stay, you stay for, you come for the open source. You stay for the the learned lessons. <laughs> yeah, put that in the show notes. Listen to the whole episode to learn how to use LN properly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad it's not just me. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> we can use that. It took me 30 years, but you'll get it in a one-hour episode. <laughs> <laughs> Adventures in the Linux command line. Here we uh, go. Episode one. That you, is you know, a whole show. Yeah, that should be a show. <laughs> you know, I. <laughs> you have to find someone that that's fit for that, right? You know, I like it when people bring up Linux and the, and the open source thing uh, because they're like, well. What should what should we use that? You know, when should we use open source or, or when not? I'm like, libraries are great. You know, whole services stay away from uh, because whatever you pull in, you're going to become an expert, like 100 percent. Like it doesn't matter what it is. It's just an easy way to skip to the part where you already built it. But then you're going to support it and maintain it. And when it comes to a service, like that's really a crux of your organization or your technology stack is going to start depending on that, which could be a huge problem in a lot of ways. And then I usually the example gets thrown at me, like, what about Linux, right? I'm like, well, tell me about a who runs Linux as a desktop and isn't an, it hasn't become an expert in everything that could possibly go wrong with that operating system. I know it's my second job. <laughs> but you, you touch on a, a topic that I think is I've been reading about. It's going to be one of my picks later on. I just finished reading a book called A Seat at the Table, which is about IT management in a post-agile world, I'll, I'll say. That's my phrase, not the author's. Uh, but he, he has a chapter about the, the build versus buy decision. And he makes the point that you should almost always build rather than buy. And his, his argument is that if you make the buy decision instead, what you're, you're not really choosing not to build, you're choosing what to build. For most IT applications, you buy something and then you spend all your time building an integration around that. I think that's similar to kind of what you're saying. You know, you, you could choose an open source tool, but then you have to spend all the time supporting it. You know, it's, it, it, or, or as Microsoft used to say back in the day, Linux is only free if your time is meaningless or, or time is worthless. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I mean, I think that's true for open source. I don't think it's true for SaaS. I, I, I think that I, I think that fundamentally, when you're buying a product, it's about finding what fits for you. And if you don't do a good job evaluating it, yeah, sure. Like I think the integrations you build around it is an important factor to deciding on whether a SaaS is good for you. Like if I found out that our customers had to build a wrapper around what we what we had, like. I think my CEO would fire me. Like, like that seems like a, a huge problem for those. And it definitely happens frequently. But I mean, I think what you're really paying for is the experts on the other side who are committed to doing that explicitly. It's not an implicit agreement like open source is that's running it that someone may do this. Like you are paying real money directly to get that support. So I think I would welcome like, hey, users, you know, if you're, <laughs> if you're an authorist customer out there and you're like, oh, we had to build this thing, like, please come tell me, like, we will immediately do this. I think there was a chapter in the Platform Revolution book that absolutely stuck with me, which was this notion of when all of your customers are doing something, that's the right time to capture that value, to pull that back into your core offering. That if everyone has to build a ra- the same wrapper around what you've got, change your product that offers the actual new interface as the core feature, or at least take ownership over that open source piece of technology and have a Docker container out there that people can go and deploy easily with whatever that thing is that you're uncomfortable being part of your ownership. So I don't think I totally agree when it comes to the the SaaS spot. Um, I think there's, I think the other thing I would say here 
which is decide what your core competency is as a company. So if it's in this space a bit, yeah, don't don't go and buy it or even open. I mean, start with the open source that you can find and then start altering altering that and selling it if the license agrees and it's not, you know, Elasticsearch or Mongo that prevents you. I mean, also don't build your own database. Uh, but, you know, if it's your core competency, yeah, definitely start that process of building it. Become the experts, learn the problems and every single one of the pain and suffering to go through that because it's your thing. But as soon as it's outside there, unless you don't have the money, like you, you said, and your time is worth less than the, the cost to do it, yeah, go for the SaaS, definitely. When I give my colleagues recommendations in this area, it's like, oh, we're struggling with this. We're building this new thing. I'm just like, step one, step one, figure out everything you're doing right now today that you couldn't just buy off the shelf and integrate and you will get back so much ROI on that on that input. And then later down the road, see that you're paying this company millions of dollars or tens of millions of dollars or in case of Amazon billion dollars and be like, wait a second, can we reduce our cost then? You know, upfront predictive cost reduction is not agile, right? Wait till you have the problem before investigating. And I think the advice is uh, would be better go the other way. You reminded me of an interview I heard not long ago with Simon Wardley. Uh, mm-hmm. Wardley, Wardley mapping. Yeah. yeah. He was on the No Nonsense Agile podcast, which is one of my favorites. And uh, if I recall, he was talking about a, a situation. He was in a, at a conference or something in a, in a group of professionals who I think were integrated with Salesforce or, or some <laughs> other big enterprise service. I don't remember which, what it was. I don't want to pick on Salesforce if it wasn't them, but it was something like that. And they were all doing custom integrations. And so he just asked the room, why are you doing custom integrations? They said, well, because nobody else has our exact business needs. So he started drilling down and asked them, what are your business needs? It turned like 80% of the people had the exact same needs. Now, I don't know why Salesforce or whichever company this was doesn't just do that thing that 80% of their customers need. Well, I do know why. I, I can guess why. They're making money selling custom integrations, but <laughs> it's a sad situation. Yeah, that's right. That's the hearing, right? <laughs> what if that's my business model? Yeah. Well, your community is worth something, right? If you have a bunch of consultants that come up and advocate for your product over the competitors, like that's a that's good for your business model in a way. So there's a relationship there. Like, do you want to put your primary advocates, evangelists, out of out of a job because you pull that in? Now, and again, I don't know if it's Salesforce, right? But Salesforce, I know, is highly configurable. And so you are on the spectrum of highly opinionated to highly configurable. And you lose value when you become more configurable because it doesn't offer the works out of the box solution. And I think solutions like that would get better and provide more value by canning a bunch of different common strategies and providing them like a service on top of the service if you will. So here's a blueprint for this sort of pattern. Here's a blueprint for this sort of pattern. And it's a one-click auto-configure every all the underlying resources underlying the whole platform. The experience that the user gets is, well, this is exactly what I wanted. But they, they just bought Slack. So, you know, and the, there's a question that I have in my mind is, is Slack getting worse because they were on that path? Or are they were they getting worse because Salesforce bought them? Was it inevitable? Or what, what's what's going on behind closed doors? And we know I don't want I don't want to say this and it be wrong, but I feel like the CEO just decided to to leave or something. I don't know. There's a story there, right? So clearly this was this was coming. There have been changes. They they started going down the path of having their own cloud platform to run Slack apps, which I can't imagine anyone was actually asking for. But I'm the <laughs> right. chief product platform owner of, of Slack, so. I wrote a Slack bot back in 2016 or so. Yeah, I'm sorry. 
I was really excited when Salesforce bought Slack because I could suddenly su- suddenly put Salesforce integrator on my CV. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh wow. You well, you I don't know if that's a good I don't know if that's a good thing. Like, <laughs> there are, over here. Yeah, I mean it depends. You know, I the recommendation I give to a lot of inexperienced engineers is make the resume for the job you're applying to. So, you know, I can imagine that can be valuable some other places. But if I saw that on one of my engineers, I would certainly have to question what they thought their job was gonna be when we hired them. I think that's a really interesting parallel, though, just talking about Slack and the way that they've evolved over the years to open source, because you see this, at least from my perspective, I work with a lot of startups. I see this a lot where a startup starts off, they've identified their target market, they have their niche, and they focus on that. And then they start adding stuff on top of it and adding stuff on top of it. And there's like this, there's this philosophy that you have to keep adding stuff on top of it and building new features, whether your customers are asking for those features or not. And then five or 10 years down the road, you've got this thing that no longer does the thing that made you successful. And then you go through this rebranding marketing exercise and try to figure out what went wrong. And nobody ever comes to the conclusion of, oh, well, we stopped doing the thing that our customers really liked or the thing that our customers really liked is now buried six screens down. And I think that's similar with open source applications or open source libraries as well, where they start off doing one more thing, one thing well, and they gain adoption in that. And then you get this what if game. Well, here's a pull request that what if we did this and what if we did that? And, and over time, it evolved to where it's now not this library that you used it for, but it's this whole suite of libraries that does the one thing that you wanted and like 15 other things that you could care less about. From somebody who, you know, like I, I write and maintain a lot of open source software. And that's actually something I like personally struggle with because a lot of the reason why I'm in open source software is because I feel like it's the most kind of like ethical and democratic. It is the way of creating the most opportunities for, you know, like the most people, like even outside of the technical problems. You know, I think like open source software is probably one of the closest things to a meritocracy that's available, at least in the job market, was incredibly helpful to me. Right. So when people make like pull requests or feature requests, I my initial response is always like, oh, yeah, that would be great. Like, of course, I want to do that. And then uh, I found, especially in some of the projects that I'm on, like maybe they're just not as widely used, or maybe that's just like a completely different direction, I think, than anybody else wants. And it's like, well, can I can I really spend all this time and, you know, and then and build it and maintain it and this and that. So I've got to I don't know. That's, that's just my little perspective over here. Well, I think what you're saying actually is you're the chief product manager for that open source repository. And I think I'm doing the same thing for what we've got. Like often we'll get someone that comes with a pull request. I think it happened today actually. Introduced a new feature. It was like, hey, this doesn't support this new thing that just came. I'm like, I looked at it. It was like one line code change. And I'm like, does that really work? And then I like tried it out and it worked. I'm like, wow, that's fantastic. And I merged <laughs> it in. And, it's, and I decided that that was part of the direction though, that the library was going, that it needed that feature. And I can imagine there aren't that many great uh, cheap product managers out there that can you imagine every single open source engineer? Wait, should I be pulling this feature in? Should we be doing this? Is probably not the most common question they're they're asking themselves. Um, so you can definitely get in that sort. But I, it is what it is. I've seen so many libraries that this was like every pull request except in, you know, maybe debug it or something like, oh, yeah, 
let's add 16 new methods to this fun to this class because you might want it with capital or lowercase or mixed case or camel case, you know, whatever. Just every possible combination of everything, you just throw it in there and make it work. Yeah. Well, I mean, there is something to be said about libraries that make it easier for user experience, like the LN, you know, which direction do the parameters go, right? And I think some of the libraries you'll see, they like, they try to guess the number of parameters and then like, which parameters did they enter? And, and they do this. And there are some that great, you know, they try to make it, you know, that adds overhead, definitely. And, and expanding the bloat. Like you could have a regular library and then like the wrapper library, which like correct some of those issues. What you said, Will, really brought up to my mind, uh, there was a book by Stephen Lynch, who's a Wall Street investor called, uh, I think, One Up on Wall Street in like 1980s or something. And it was revolutionary. He used this word frequently that I I, I stole from there, diversification. So you take something (laughs) and... And rather than like, you know, diversifying and getting the benefit of that, it's like you had a core competency, you know, a core idea, something to really go after. And then you started adding these other things on for whatever reason, right? You probably wanted more money. It's usually the driving factor, at least in in investments, right? And I think it happens here too, right? You know, what is your business doing? When I do hear some of my, my peers say, oh, you know, we're expanding our engineering department by a factor of two in the coming years. And I'm like, what mistake are you making? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you never want more engineers around. Oh, that's, that's such a terrible fate. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think it's the it's the mythical man month problem, right? Like you aren't going to go faster. So the only conclusion is you are you are trying to do twice as much. Like you're pulling on a new product that you are, have already tested, you've already vetted, and you're like, we're going to do this with our business. And now we're going to have two businesses that are running on under under one umbrella. And I think that can work to some scale. I think there's a mistake, especially with the race to become the next unicorn that you have to be scaling up as fast as possible. It's not something that we do. We don't really go after investor money. And fundamentally, it just doesn't make sense because like, we don't need more engineers to accomplish what we've got a good deal on. And I mean, obviously the right number is important and not going further than that, right? Like whatever it is, like we have our, our mission, whatever our vision is, we're going, we're going for it and how big it is. And it's not size, like size is not a end goal. Like I want to be the CTO of a hundred thousand person company. No, I, I don't. I, that, that's not where I'm going. And what do you do when you get there? Right. That's you, you get to go to sleep at night and be like, did I accomplish what I, what I set out to do? You know, I love the managers that are like, I, I did, my services supported $10 million per, per year transactions and I ran a 200 person engineering department and I'm like okay but you failed my behavioral interview so uh, (laughs) but I had some really innovative agile meetings Yeah, that's always the story. That's what Duarte, who, who's famous for his No Estimates book, uh, likes to say on, on LinkedIn every now and again. You know, the reason you scale is not to add engineers; it's to do more work with fewer engineers. Mm. And I like that. You know, that's good I, wisdom. I, I, yeah, the whole industry we're in is about automation, which is about mm. less human labor. So why yep. do we get excited when we add more human labor to the, to the equation? You know, I don't. I don't get it. That's why it's the best feeling, by the way. Like when you can just get rid of a whole bunch of code. Like ah, I love that. I had an upgrade. Like that a couple of weeks ago. I thought you were going to say when he get rid of a bunch of people. I, I, mean, I was like, oh no, don't say it, Julia. <laughs> <laughs> no, see, this is this is why I won't hire people anymore. By the way, is I'm just like, no, like I don't, I don't have like the peopling skills for this kind of thing. 
Uh, like no 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 but you know i think that's kind of an interesting warren which you brought up with like like the companies and the growth in these companies that take the vc funding and they're expected to grow by these ridiculous factors and it's just it's always like oh let's it's like a train wreck that you can't look away from right because (laughs) what other industry expects that well i I mean i I think it could be a lot of them it's not necessarily an industry specific thing i think it's it's correlated with the software industry or, or the you know hard engineering uh, or yeah, it could be I'm just paying more attention to the tech. Yeah, yeah, well, right, I mean, there could bias. It could, it could definitely could be, but you don't need to scale up like a manufacturing physical location to increase where you're going there. And if you look at it, of course, there's like, what is VC funding, right? It's this train that left the station and VC funding just increases the velocity. So fail fast or successful. So that train is either going to crash or it's going to be successful. And all you're going to do is make that happen faster. So there is some merit there. It's like, if you want to start that train, leaving the station and go after it, like it can be a thing you go after. And there's a very cut and dry, this is the approach you take. You go around seeds of funding, you convince more and more people to invest in your business. Uh, until you get to the point where it, it does become successful and the founders crash out. Sorry, I said successful. What I mean is the investors are able to take their money out because that's what success is. It's not, I mean, IPOing doesn't mean you were successful. It means the, the BC investor investors were successful, but anyone who's still there, like, you know, it's it might as well be called whatever sort of <laughs> not what if they pay situation. me to leave? I mean, like, that still might be success from my point of view. <laughs> I think you, you touched on a really interesting point, and that is that everybody defines success differently. And that's why you would have these these things, you know, where some people are trying to have a team with the least number of engineers and others want to hire a, a thousand people because their version of success, maybe not their company's version, but their version of success has them managing a thousand people. And and maybe that's legitimate in some sense. You know, maybe that's the, step, the next step on the, the ladder they're trying to climb, or maybe it's just ego boosting. But whatever it is, for some reason, they've defined success as managing tons of people. It, it may not be even them, right? Like, I feel like if you're in the VC area, you're taking that insight from your investors potentially, and they're the ones telling you that you need to scale and that's what success is for you. So you're going to maybe take them at their word because you don't have the sufficient experience. Otherwise, I don't know, you would have known better in the first place and go after it and go after it. And it is in some way, right? Like the founders are keeping some share. And if it does IPO, they're just as successful, right? They do get an exit potentially and founders are there. But, you know, I think Jillian asked the important question, you know, what are we doing to society? Is this even the right approach for us to, you know, have companies like this? And uh, I think I read a paper recently about like why billionaires are always wrong or something like that or shouldn't exist, I think is what it said. But money is a good one, actually. There is the cost of of managing the, the software, which I mean, I think we talked a little bit about, but, you know, I see some of the competitors in our space, the authentication, authorization, whatever, that they're using libraries or they get tons of funding to be able to support their library management, their open source strategy of getting external engineers in and uh, getting customers that way. And then they sort of maybe lie about why those customers came and used their stuff, right? Like, oh, they're using your open sourcing. That means they're using our actual product. And I don't think they would have been successful if, if you just look at the actual product. Like, it's just not there. So it's like, you know, how do you even compete with a company that's getting VC money? Either their product is terrible. They're going through the, the steps of getting bigger and bigger only to cause the weight to crush their actual customers who they never really designed for. I think, you know, open source also has that problem, right? The security is an aspect we talk about. Scale is another one, right? A lot of libraries are not designed to scale, right? Like 
they're there to solve a very specific problem, which concurrency, those engineers haven't heard of that before. Or what you're using it in just maybe not just directly supported at a multiple levels down. It's not designed to be resilient, right? Like our software, five nines, like that's our SLA. I mean, we go, we contract out for more than that. But realistically, what open source library is sitting out there is like, this is a 5.9 open source library. Like if you install this, it will never have a bug ever. Like they're not promising that. Definitely not. You know, that's one of the like really interesting aspects uh, of data science or like software that comes out of the data science space. Most of it is not written by software engineers. Mm. It's written by, you know, like like scientists that's, you know, by their data scientists who learn just enough code to be dangerous and, um, you know, need to solve some kind of like very specialized problem that they understand and that the engineers don't. And so they get like forced into doing this code that they didn't want to do in the first place, by the way. They were like, why do I have to do this? And, you know, and they do this and then you end up with the software that everybody relies on and isn't, I don't know, just, it just ends up having like maybe like some strange conventions or they they don't know what a load balancer is and they try to code it themselves. Like I see that one a lot or they create their own, you know, system of threads instead of just using a threading library. Like there, there's a lot of like, just like kind of like weird little things that happen because it's not written by software engineers, but it solves a problem. So that's the thing. Like it solves that people use it because it solves the problem that it needs to be solved. Oh, there's definitely problems. There's definitely a, you know, how much will this software be used going forward? Like there's a difference when I'm doing the advent of code, which is up right now and that should never that code should never see the light of day anywhere and stuff that goes into production which has everything every bell and whistle there should be you know you bring up the data science thing and one of the things that came to mind my mind a while ago was the code you write is it a reflection of like how you think and who you are you know what what sort of aspects are important to you aesthetic quality or whatnot and uh, just how you think about your own space like do data scientists can they not actually write code well maybe they can but they think about it differently so the code they write may be inconsistent with code that a software engineer would write. I mean, obviously, the business direction is different, right? The reliability of that has to be different. But frequently, problems I would hear in some of my former experiences were, this takes eight hours to run or 24 hours to run. And I'm like, there are some simple solutions here that it will still take the exact same time. But instead of it crashing randomly once every seven days, like when it does crash, it can just pick up in the middle and resume. And that's like a head exploding moment. It's like, wow, hey, you can hey, you can do stop, that. Stop coding me out of business. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> Listen. We'll have to edit that part of the episode yeah, out. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's, uh... that's right. Don't, don't be giving out the secret sauce over here. I'm, I'm removing it. Yeah. I don't know that, you know, that's me all day long. I, I get, I, you know, I have people listening to me and be like, wow, Warren, you should write that down. I'll be like, yes. And everything else, my content backlog is really long. I haven't gotten through it all yet. The next time I have some time, I'll, I'll write something up, but, uh, I start little wikis on, on GitHub or, or Obsidian or whatnot and try to share them. And it's just, the list goes on and on. And it's just like, is anyone actually going to read this? Try medium blog posts on, on these different things like Warren rants. I don't think anyone actually wants to read that though. <laughs> You never know. Who's that? The kind of like got famous for a minute blog uh, on programming. It was what was it? It was like like programming sucks. Keep drinking, or it was something like that. And I just remember that that making the round. And it was basically just like rants about software engineering. So you never know. You never know what's what's going to hit with the people. That's definitely a good point. 
I get followers like every couple of weeks. They're just like, I don't know who this person is or why, what they found that was so enlightening here, bookmarking that or, or coming back to it later. I'm like, I'm glad, I'm glad there are people out there that are finding my stuff and be like, wow, you know, that's really insightful. There's a bunch of other communities that I'm a uh, part of that I see people questioning the same thing or running into the same engineering or management problem. And that sort of triggers me to rethink over all my thoughts, go back, like, what do I think about this actually? And then get triggered to write something down. And now I have this article and the next time someone complains, like, I don't understand why, you know, fill in the blank. I'd be like, you know what? Actually, I have this article I wrote just for this exact purpose. Let me share that with you. And uh, maybe that, you know, gives you some insight. I start with the, sometimes I get triggered, right? That, that's always the best. You know, someone says something that's just like, wow, some other company is doing this thing and you just start writing stuff down. <laughs> and eventually I'm like, you know, this could be a blog post and have to spend then a ton of time fixing it up. So it's uh, appropriate for the public before releasing it. That's what a lot of my documentation is. Like I'm triggered about something and I'm like, listen, when you encounter this, don't do this thing that you're thinking of doing, do this other thing. And it's it's kind of like obvious that, you know, maybe I should have like gone for a walk. Gone for like a more chill solution. Wow, like I feel like that happens commercial. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Yeah. No, definitely. I feel like it happens every single time I review some code that I get in that mode. Like, wow, you know, there's like some fundamental rule here that like I've taken into my existence because I, I don't know, I read the gang of four, you know, design patterns or I, I was burned by it probably in my past, right? There was some enterprise software I was working with that did something that was just atrocious in some way. And I never wanted to do it again. Like I found, I never thought it would happen, but a bunch of years ago, I was working on a monolith solution for a manufacturing company. Company, and there was some re-entrant code. Like there was code that called a bunch of other functions, which called itself again. And wow, like it wasn't intentionally recursive. It just like it happened to do this and it never got fixed. Like in, like the five years I had seen it, then I left. I still was running there, that code. I'm like, this can't work correctly. Like no one can actually undo that. Like you need to go in and be like, okay, what is this actually supposed to do? And dive in and then try to fix it. And that's not a fun experience. On a slightly tangential topic, like every software engineer I know has like real specific triggers, like real, real like niche and specific, specific triggers that they will, they will tell you about. Don't have triggers. I can't, I can't stand that word. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think, I think we can say that there may be, and I don't know if this is true. I don't know. Maybe there's a correlation between those that are in the software engineering or adjacent space and those sort of people that have like autism spectrum disorder. And so I can imagine, you know, myself included, when I see something like that, it's like, this totally wrong. I can't believe you would ever write something like that and force me to look at it. And it's there. And then, and then someone else, you know, it comes up to me and be like, wow, like I really hate, I'm changing all these things because I hate all of them. And I'm like, take a moment. You know, take a deep breath. Right. <laughs> I know it's important. I know it's important to you, Listen, but I want you to <laughs> justify it when it's me. It's oh yeah. Justified when it's oh yeah. You. Oh, de- oh, definitely. Uh, but you know, I think the advice, especially for inexperienced engineers, was always uh, you should see the difference between it being valuable for the company and valuable because you want to do it. Like you should trust your intuition because it's valuable, right? It's telling you something. It may not, other people just may not see it the same way. And so figuring out how to sell that intuition as valuable uh, was a huge thing that at least helped me a lot in my past because I definitely got... <laughs> I'm trying to think of a different word so I don't, I, I don't, uh, I don't get Jonathan yelling. <laughs> well, you just use the same word. So, you know, that, that's a sort of self-enforcing prophecy there. Yeah. 
Okay, actually, that word is fine now. It's a different one. You'll, you'll know when you say it. Oh, it's temporary. So like, it's the word of the day that you're not allowed to say. You're, you're, ta- you're talking about like the, the challenge of some of these libraries. We were recently, because of the press of passkeys everywhere, which if everyone doesn't know, it's sort of like this uh, system for integrating the FIDO2 standard uh, U2F, like via UB keys or anything like that, uh, across the different uh, devices or sharing them or using them for sharing them and using them for login. And uh, we were implementing it as part of our solution, you know, providing some way of for providers or service providers. So your whatever app that you're building platform can support passkeys to log in. And we're like trying to figure out the library. It's like, okay, we're not the first people to do this. We know that Apple has an implementation, that there's some other ones out there. There's actually a whole list. And this should be easy. And we're like going through open source libraries. Like, okay, it's using a standard format. It's called CBOR, which compresses the data. Great. There's a library for that. It's outdated five years, 10 years ago, like still hasn't been updated. So the data format well, it's standardized. There's RFC for it. And there's libraries. Those libraries haven't been touched in forever. Not necessarily a bad pattern. Although there's a lot of like what the actual data is, is important. So the format, you don't want just that library. You need to extract that in some way. And so we found a bunch of U2F libraries, which didn't work, right? Like three or four of those, just totally dead. At least you can go on GitHub or GitLab and see the issues and someone will be like, this doesn't work. Is this maintained? And that's your indicator <laughs> to, to run very far away. And then we found a bunch of other ones by our competitors that had open source things that weren't actual libraries. They're just wrappers on their, on their APIs. So it sort of fixed it. And like with the web auth and stuff, you need a client side library. There's, you, you can't live without that. And you need a service side library. Uh, something open source that just wraps an API isn't going to be sufficient. And so we like pulled three or four things together, wrote a bunch of validations and through in our service. And my CEO is like, that thing right there, you know, go go release that. Uh, that's that's valuable for both the community and advertisement uh, as part of our thing. And it's like, it's like, it's not ready, right? You know, we're still getting users on board on that and seeing if it works out. And then maybe in a few months from now, it, it, will, be, it will be there. But until that point, there'll be no shortage of usage of these old libraries and pain and suffering by the engineers that are told to implement this standard and run in the same hole that we do. But because it's not their core competence, they don't have the motivation to push through that challenge, really, of the open source world. That's cool, though. I'm so glad you guys are like, you know, like, okay, we built this and it's useful because of this, this, and this reason. Let's open source it. That used to be like a way harder sell, I think, yeah. than it is now. So if, if nothing else, you know, I think the open source community has come a very long way. And just, I don't know if we've just like kind of beaten people in a submission. Like, yeah, too bad. It's going to be open source. Oh, or definitely. Or believe in the open source. But which, whichever way it is, I'm happy that I also think there's a change in mindset. We, you used to think software was special. Mm. Uh, yeah, we don't and, think and, that and, anymore, do we? And, and now we realize that what's special, especially for a SaaS, isn't the software per se, it's the, the management of the software, which is, I think, a big part of the point that Warren's making tonight. I say tonight, it's night as I record this, probably not for anybody else, and probably not as you're listening, but night as I, as I record this. <laughs> it's it's 7.44 for me, so I'll okay, call that okay. night. Great. <laughs> yeah. No, definitely. I, I think I'm going to say the management, but like there, you have these interconnected pieces that how you align them together and and then deliver them as a unified package. Uh, the organization of that, just like you're not you're not connecting together the silicon based transistors uh, to build a computer to deliver your software. You know, you took some computer components and put them together, and that became a, a thing that you're selling the value on, sort of the value added tax nature and the European Union sort of thing, right? You, it's it's that connection. That, that is offering the value. The finding of those open source libraries and pulling them together is, is the product. Yeah, definitely. Well, we have been talking for about an hour. It's probably time to start to wrap up. Are there any last points that uh, we should discuss before we move on to pick? 
<laughs> you know, the thing that, that I think was on everyone's mind like right now is the chat GPT. And I feel like we would be amiss if we didn't say a couple words about that. Yeah. So for the record, the, the intro I gave at the beginning of this program, it, those weren't my words. That was completely chat GPT. So you can either credit or blame the chat bot for that. <laughs> but what do you want to say about it, Warren? What, what are your thoughts? I think there, the current sentiment is something like, oh, fear for finally software engineers will lose their jobs. But I, for one, am really, I don't say ecstatic, like it's quite surprising how far it's come since the last iteration of what we've had, which was GPT-3, which is the content generation, automatic content generation. And so obviously it's doing some of that, but it's pulling in a lot of things that you just wouldn't be, wouldn't expect it to do to answer questions or sort of continue the conversation like uh, internal state. I think that's come a long way, actually, uh, to the point where you could, I, I could actually see, like, as you pointed out for this program, generating those sorts of things for real and using them. I think the people who need to fear for their jobs the most from chat GPT are middle managers who never say anything. You know, it's really good at spitting out intelligent sounding nonsense, in other words. <laughs> and it's good for them then, right? Now they have a tool that they can just enter it in, whatever their manager says, and they just have to repeat that. I think this is genius for them. I think actually it's worse. I think every innovation uh, subjugates the either impoverished or lower classes in this way, that this is a tool that is going to be used by the most experienced, most uh, well-funded individuals and organizations out there to become more advanced, whereas the ones that don't have access to this technological resource will get further behind. Yeah, that's what worries me about like all the AI stuff. I mean, I guess I guess it's only like semi-related, but when during the pandemic, when like a lot of the stores were like, well, we're just going to start to have completely automated like robotic checkouts like Walmart and stuff. And if you really go and look at that, like Walmart, there are places where Walmart is the major employer of like entire towns, you know, like maybe if you're if you're from like a city or something, you may not realize this, but you go out to, you know, like the Midwest of the, you know, or places that are less populated, maybe don't have like, you know, a lot of hospitals or tech centers or something like that. Some of these stores like are, you know, the major employer, you know, like when factories left, it's the same kind of idea. And how are we all going to deal with that? I don't know. I don't know. I don't have any answers. I want to buy some land and pitch attempt. And that's that's my plan. I see this dystopian coming. Like technology is both accelerating, you know, good, positive as the earth is getting destroyed, like just asymptotic uh, divergence here. So like we'll end up with that perfect uh, the God machine, right? At the same time, humanity is over. <laughs> I think that's the basis of a couple movies. <laughs> I would be remiss to end a, a conversation about AIs replacing de- developers without talking about Star Trek. Which episode? Elementary Dear Data, the episode where Jordy... With the Android phone? ...to create a holodeck character capable of defeating Data. <laughs> ah, oh, with, yeah. with Morty Artie. Exactly. And, you know, mm. th- th- this just goes to show, I mean, of course, Star Trek is real, so we know that this is a real-life uh, yeah. lesson to be learned. Right? Naturally. This goes to show that even when you have really smart AI that can do programming for you, it still depends on good input. And you still have to give it good instructions. And someone is going to be paid to give it those instructions. I think, I think, (laughs) I always, you know, each of those things in in the episodes, I was like, I, should I challenge? Like, was that a good ending for an AI? Would it have gotten stuck in a bottle? I, I don't, I don't know. Right. Is that is that the the end that we we hope for sentient uh, beings to be convinced that they live in their own world, uh, simulated reality? Yeah, and I think that's just kind of sums up my thoughts on the whole chat G- GPT thing. And I don't get paid to write code. You know, I get paid to solve problems. 
And when you shift your perspective like that, there's always going to be problems. Maybe I don't write code to solve those problems. There'll probably be a lot of people happy about that, myself included. I was going to say, my clients, like if they could have a solution where nobody was writing code, they would prefer that. Yeah. I love what Daniel North says about that. He calls software is like surgery. (laughs) You need it, it, but you want a minimum amount possible. Yeah. Wow. I've been using Gardner Alexander. I mean, I think people have to become experts in whatever the tools are that they have available to them, right? Yeah. The the bot just being one of them, right? And I think, you know, somewhere in my mind, there's <laughs> there's this lie I'm telling myself where like, no, I'm still better than, than the, <laughs> the, the AI, right? <laughs> Got, gotta, gotta forget about that, right? Have to find new skills. I think uh, Randall Monroe has the next KCD here on like what... AI hasn't beaten us. And like on one side, it's like tic-tac-toe. And I think on the other side, humans still winning is like seven minutes in heaven. <laughs> Let's take it to picks. Who wants to go first? Will, All right. join us late. Do you have a pick? I do. Actually, I have a seasonally relevant pick because by the time this drops, we're going to be close to the Christmas season. So my pick is holiday oriented. One of the things that's great for the holidays is everyone getting into the holiday spirit. Everyone's a little more cheerful and nicer to each other. And I think a big part of that is watching holiday themed movies. So my pick, I referenced it a couple of weeks ago and then forgot to pick it, but I'm back with it now. My pick is the go-to holiday movie of the season. It has William Shatner in it. It's got some kid that looks like the kid from Home Alone. And it's got an epic battle of Santa battling Krampus. It is the Christmas horror movie. So it's got everything that you... That's the title. A Christmas horror movie, I think. Now that you say that, I'm second guessing it. (laughs) I should probably know what movie. Christmas horror story, I think. A Christmas horror story. That's it. But yeah, it's got everything that you want in a holiday movie. So that's my pick. How do you know what I want in a holiday movie, Will? Because it has something for everyone. It's got romance, action, adventure, blood, gore, candy, holiday lights, Christmas carols. Candy. You got me a candy. That's what I want. There we go. I do not do any horror movies in the slightest. Like, I just, no. Nope, it's Christmas, nope, I'm going for the Muppets Christmas. No, I want the Muppets it's, Christmas, it's Christmas Carol, okay? It's a Christmas movie. With the Muppets Christmas Carol and cookies <laughs> and Legos and, like, I don't want none of this gory nonsense. Well, cool. well, just I have get to in trouble if I make my wife, my wife watch this with me. She hates horror movies, too. She's I'm going to say yes. Um, you know what? I'm going to answer for her. And that answer is going to be yes, because every once in a while, my husband tries to get me to watch like some kind of thriller I, or something. I'm going to tell her it's a William you know, Shatner Christmas cry. movie. Yeah. I'll go from there. She likes that's, that's what I did. You know what? <laughs> I'm, and, I'm and if go, she doesn't get the idea. joke, it's her fault for not listening to this episode ahead of time. <laughs> yeah, right? Do anybody's spouses actually listen to the show? Like, I know mine doesn't. All right, Dylan, <laughs> what's your pick? <laughs> so I'm going to go for the shameless self-promotion, this pick. I mean, I forgot one of, what one of them was. I had to choose, but now... <laughs> It was you, Jillian. It's a self-promotion. Oh, I know. Yeah, okay. So I have some work opening up pretty soon. And I've been really interested in kind of this evolution of companies that are trying to create like small, you know, small, very specialized apps and deploy them, um, scale them, get them out to their customer base, which is typically scientists because that's what I do. So if you're running a company like that and you just want somebody to, you know, bounce ideas off on, that's that's kind of what I'm looking for. You can go find me at dabbleofdevops.com. There's a link. Or I have a whole bunch of open source libraries at a project called BioAnalyze. Go get them while they're there. That's, that's what I have to say about those. 
of that pick. Since we've been talking about open source software and its maintainability, I'm I'm just going to throw that out there. (laughs) And then I guess my fun pick for the week is I have been reading The Wings of Fire. It's like a middle grade series with my oldest daughter. And they have first it was like a novel and then they produced a bunch of like graphic novels that are basically the same story. They are so fun. I love the fact that like there's so many graphic novels out there, especially for middle schoolers, because I just feel like that speaks to me both like mentally and emotionally is the is the middle school grade level. But they are really fun. So if you're kind of looking for stuff to read with your kids, um, I don't know. I like them. They're good. Wings of Fire. There's dragons. There's action, adventure. There's no horror. Well, <laughs> and there candy. I don't know. I don't. I don't think so. No. Is there Santa fun. battling Krampus? Nope. See? No. I'm pretty sure there isn't. Drag- but there's but there's dragons battling other dragons. So what do you like? What else do you even need? Santa battling Krampus. She, does, she does make a strong point there, Will, about dragons and dragons. All right, Warren, do you want to go next? Or fight for another show. <laughs> I, I can go. You know, I think my company is going to have some sort of PR piece drop next, the beginning of next year about the whole authentication authorization phase for, for B2B. I know our CEO has been working really hard on that. It's difficult to find good PR agents and know what to publish and content is hard, right? As you all know, doing this, doing this podcast. But I actually think, and I, you know, and I think we're looking for, you know, small and mid-sized companies that are, have struggling with login authentication and complex permission things. But I think my pick is actually going to be, maybe, maybe this has probably been said before. I love space just anything there. And for the longest time, I've hated the notion of dark matter because for anyone who doesn't know, dark matter is just this term that's assigned to, we think there's matter out there, but we can't find it. So we're just going to call it dark matter. And it's always bothered me that that was the term. Not like, oh, we don't know. It was always, there's a term dark matter. And I think that got a lot of people confused. And with the the successful release of the James Webb Space Telescope, which has been fantastic, I have a reminder every month to go on, on the website and download whatever pictures are available because these are stunning full desktop photographs of huge quality. Like I, they're great. They're better than anything you could take anywhere else. So that's part A. And part B is I think it's been enough to almost justify like what the matter is and where it's out there that should be coming to conclusions soon. So I am really looking forward to getting rid of the term dark matter or replacing it with whatever we discover really is. I hate I, the term dark matter too. And I, my prediction has been, and I'm not an astrophysicist, so my prediction means nothing. But my prediction has always been we're going to discover some fundamental law of gravity or something that's going to be like, oh, there's no dark matter. It's this other thing completely unrelated. But whatever whatever it is, I'll be glad when they stop calling it dark matter too. <laughs> you prefer to go back to the the ether, right? That that's the term that you you, you, you <laughs> I think they could just call it stuff and it well, would be the, like just a subscription. Right? I mean the, like, they, they they actually so there was proof that was done that that proved that there is nothing in space that we don't we aren't seeing. So if there were, we would be able to detect a slight deviation in the uh, photon wave patterns uh, on the incident uh, interference when they come back. So there's actually a whole experiment done that proves that there is nothing in the absence. So like, where is it basically? The other, the other conclusion is that the Big Bang never happened. And really, there's some other explanation for what's going on. And the universe isn't really 13.8 billion years old or however scientists decided to calculate this relative time in an absolute way, which also makes no sense. So I'm hoping those scientific quandaries get resolved and we don't end up with, oh yeah, we are in a simulation. We are really just the result of a chat GPT-6. Virtual machine? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's the internal memory. I use the phrase dark money a lot. 
It was like whenever my bank says, oh. dude, your account's overdrawn. I'm like, no, there's there's money there. It's just dark money. <laughs> you just have to look harder for it. Totally in that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like my transfer money from some of those other accounts. It'll all time. it'll all even out. It'll be fine. Right. All right, I have two picks for the week. I already gave a hint to one of them. It's the book, A Seat at the Table, IT Leadership in the Age of Agility by Mike Schwartz. He writes it for CIOs, not per se CTOs, but it's more or less the same thing. I mean, basically, his his viewpoint is for internal IT organizations, not those building products for, for other customers. But almost everything in the book is still applicable if you're a CTO or work in a product-facing uh, IT company. Really good insight. He likes to talk about lean, agile, DevOps. And he gives some fresh views. Like he says some things that would piss off some agilists, which I, I think is kind of a fresh view to, you know, to not sort of tiptoe around the, the hardcore uh, manifesto thumping agilists out there. So it's a good book, uh, really good book. It's funny. I listened to the audio book. I think he narrates it himself and he does a good job or, or maybe he doesn't. I don't know. But whoever narrated it did a great job. So I highly recommend the book. It's, it's a good book, especially if you're interested in tech leadership of some sort. If you want to become a manager or, or C, CIO or CTO, I highly recommend the book. My second pick, I actually hinted at this too is a podcast the no nonsense agile podcast it's one of only two agile podcasts i regularly listen, listen to actually i used to listen to many others and i kind of just started weeding out my list as they started re- repeating and i got to hear the same old boring talk about how big your story points should be or whatever nonsense for the week that just repeated nonsense i feel like the no nonsense agile podcast does a really good job of having fresh guests on and good topics and of course I was their guest, which is why I have to pick it this time. What? So episode number 63 was me <laughs> talking about continuous delivery. But they've had some really uh, excellent guests, uh, much better than myself, honestly. Simon Wardley, Dave Farley, uh, Brian Finster, many, many others. So I highly recommend their podcast. I haven't heard an episode I didn't enjoy. So I highly recommend the No Nonsense Agile Podcast. Right and on. that's my picks for the week. Any last words before we sign off, guys? You reminded me of this book I just finished that was highly recommended called uh, Formula Science of Success by Barabasi. I believe. And there's some quite interesting conclusions there about who actually becomes successful and how that happens. So I think there's a lot to be said about the luck aspect, (laughs) which is unfortunate. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you for coming on, Warren. It's been a fun conversation, a lot to talk about, a lot of uh, good topics. So I enjoyed um, it. Thanks for everyone for listening. We will see you next time on Adventures in DevOps. Talk to you next week.